This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. I've got a conversation with Michael Barber from the group Glory Hammer to share with you. Michael is the group's keyboard player, and the catalyst for the conversation with him is due to an Australian tour which is happening throughout November of 2023. I'll leave the dates in the episode description. Now, throughout the chat, of course, we talk all about the tour and what Australian audiences can anticipate. The recent album, Return to the Kingdom of Fife, and there's some quality banter about the situation ongoing between venues and bands with regards to royalties from merch sales. So here he is, Michael Barber. Hello, mate. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can, loud and clear. How's things? Yeah, good, man. How are you? Not bad at all. Right on time, too. I've got to hand it to you. It's been like that this last few days. Everybody's been right on time. <laughs> it's not usually uh, we, we like just that. Been, just been doing a few um, back-to-back interviews for this tour. So, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Can for him. Yeah. How, how have you found it? How have you found the chats with us? It's, it's probably like having a chat with someone next door, is it? Yeah, it's really easy. I've, I've got, like, a lot of friends from Australia, so I kind of get the, get the humour in. Yeah, it's easy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've got to agree. I've done so many of these. I'm up to almost 800 at this point. Um, apart from the fact that, you know, we don't get along around sport or what have you. I mean, you wouldn't bloody know you're speaking <laughs> to a Brit or an Australian. I think they're pretty much interchangeable, yeah, yeah. Pretty much interchangeable these days, you know. Yeah, fair enough. Hey, uh, so we're here to talk about your uh, your tour, your tour, which is coming up in November, I believe. Okay, and Dicey's putting that one on too. So That's right, yeah. Yeah, look, in preparation for the chat, um, I read on a wall of sound, the wall of sound website that in uh, 2014, and I know you weren't quite in the band then, but is there some sort of myth or law going on about this 2014 Australian tour? Because they uh, <laughs> claim it was one of those tours you had to be at, and that's rarely said. That's, that's literally, yeah, that's one of, one of the um, guys I was just speaking with was saying, and, and it, I think it is the kind of case as well. Yeah, the, the other guys in the band were always just like, can't explain it, you know, you just had to to be there <laughs> yeah fair enough yeah yeah i hadn't look i haven't got much background on the band actually i know that there's four four albums out there but it, are you guys a bit of an underground sensation are you uh we're, we're doing pretty well in uh in europe and we've just done our third tour of the usa which was the um mm. I, I guess the first the first tour that we've done there which was comparable to european tour so it seems like going there three times, you know, it's like the magic number. We've kind of cracked that. So we're just trying to get into new markets now. Um, obviously, there was that tour in 2014. But, um, it wasn't really a serious tour, you know. It was, it was. I think they had some mates who wanted to bring the guys over, and mm. they were all playing on borrowed, borrowed instruments, and it was just a big piss up, basically. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely you had to be there if that was the case. Those tours are usually like that. <laughs> yeah. When you go on stage after your fourth beer, that sort of thing, and you throw caution to the wind. Yeah. They're, they're rare, and you can only do it at that stage. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a rock and roll tour, you know. Yeah, I get you, yeah. Hey, what's the what's the reception been like to the latest album, uh, Return to the Kingdom of Fife? Has that, has that met your expectations and surpassed them? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been really good, you know. Like uh, we, we, It was the first album with a new singer. It's the first album with me as a co-writer, um, Previously to that, it's mostly just been Chris from a uh, from Ailstorm. Um, I think this time, when we tallied up the sort of royalties, I'd actually written a little bit more than him, um, and it's the first time I've written a power metal power metal album. You know, I, I, I tend to write more kind of extreme metal, so it's not quite in my wheelhouse. But I'm I'm super chuffed with 
with how it turned out. You know, it was really fun, and I'm really happy with the reception as well. I think now the songs have had time to sort of settle with people. You know, we've just done this European uh, festival season. Fans are like bringing those kind of drawings they've done based on the new songs and stuff like that. You know, mm. so they seem to have resonated with people. Yeah, gotcha. What's the go with the the law within the band? This uh, is it Zago Thrax? Is that your your nickname or your alter ego? Yeah, it's just the kind of character that I play. Yeah, so you've basically got like this core cast of um, <clears throat> main characters, I guess, uh, and whoever's sort of in the band at the time is just kind of playing oh, the role gotcha. of like the the state the on stage role of that character. But they're not really kind of us, if it makes sense. We're just sort of representing them on stage. Hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. What about, you mentioned extreme metal there, and that's generally more my, my wheelhouse too. Occasionally I get these sort of opportunities, so it's interesting you mentioned that. So what was the lure or what was the attraction to playing something different? Um, initially, I've, I've just known, I've known um, Chris and I've known Jim, the bass player, since probably like 2009 or something, um, and, and I remember going to Jim's house um, well, not really house. I, I, won't, I won't go into that, but more, more of a squat. Um, <laughs> but he, he'd asked me to record some guitar solos on a um, on like a death metal project he was doing. And I, I remember, you know, we were sat there drinking a bit of cider and recording these like silly Slayer solos and stuff like this. Hmm. And um, he was like, oh, I'm starting a band with Chris. Um, it's called Glory Hammer. And he showed me this demo. Uh, it was with the original vocalist. This is two vocals, vocalists ago. And... Uh, I remember him showing me his demos and, and to be honest, I wasn't very impressed. <laughs> I was like, kind of good luck with that, mate. Um, mm -hmm. And then a year or two later, they were like, oh, we've got to deal with Napalm. We've got a, folk, we've got a proper vocalist. Um, and I remember them showing me the album and I was like, it's not really my kind of thing. This is pretty cool, you know. And I ended up working for them uh, as a guitar tech on the first tour uh, back in 2013 or so. Um, and I just kind of got to know everyone. I kind of got to understand the vibe and the music a bit. And, you know, it's like, this is fun. And then I remember Chris sending me some stuff from their second album. And it just felt like they'd sort of stumbled onto this formula now where it wasn't just like a power metal tribute band, you know, they'd, they'd become yeah. their own band. And I was just like, wow, you know, this is actually pretty impressive, you know. And I remember at that point I was a bit jealous because I was like, man, these guys are killing it. And uh, I'm sat in my bedroom playing like Black Metal Riffs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, when when Chris got busy with Ailstorm, um, you know he, he sort of passed passed the reins on to me, and um, mm. and, and it took it took a bit of kind of digging in myself because I, I used to love power metal when I was a teenager. Um, I just sort of fell away from it a bit, um, mm. and then as we toured with toured with more and more bands, you know, we were touring with Hammerfall, we were touring with you know all, all these cool bands, and and I kind of fell back in love with what I used to like about it, you know, the kind of over the top kind of like, like concentrated heavy metal you know it, it kind of started to appeal to me again so uh, yeah I, I just found myself back in it back in it you know? yeah okay yeah and it sounds like the um the the title return to the kingdom of five is like tying up the loose end of that not so excellent debut tales from the kingdom of five is that what the deal is there yeah, basically. I mean, you probably know there's like a sort of overarching storyline that's kind of going from album to album. <laughs> and um, it's kind of disrupted at the end of the third album with, you know, all kinds of sh shenanigans. But to cut it short, basically we find ourselves back at the 
first album um, with, our, with our new one it, it starts off kind of just after the first album's finished um, and we kind of wanted the music to represent that as well like the, the first album was really influenced by you know bands like Rhapsody and stuff like this like you know it's mm. kind of classic uh, late 90s early 2000s power metal um, so we're trying to bring those musical influences in to fit the storyline because it's kind of set close, so close to the first album. Mm. Um, okay, fair enough. Yeah, and because you've you just mentioned there that the royalties reflect that you've written a lot more. So do you write separately or together, or do you bring a song into the rehearsal room? How does that work? Because we're all based all over the place, we tend to just write using like different uh, software. We use. Um, I don't know if you know, like Guitar Pro. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, we, we, use, so. we use that. We we use that for the basis of our writing because it's so easy for everyone to just jump in and edit the file without sort of committing to recording anything. Hmm. Um, so we'll we'll sort of hash out the skeleton of the song in Guitar Pro. Um, that will get sent backwards and forwards between everyone. Um, and, and normally, yeah, it'd be like you know, me or Chris or someone will like sort of post in the group and be like, hey, you know, I've got an idea, and then someone else will be like, all right, well, you know, I'll work on it for a little bit, you know, give me, give me an hour or so. Hmm. And um, then they'll send it back. And it's, you kind of just like back and forth between people. And well, once you get into the flow of working like that, then normally you can kind of get the structure of the song done pretty quickly. Uh, and then yeah. we start demoing like vocals and different instruments and stuff like this and see what hmm. works. And if it does, you cut off, you're done. And if not, then it's kind of back to the drawing board. Is there are there many arguments and who has right of veto? Um, I mean, if some if if someone really thinks someone something sucks, you know, then we'll kind of be like, all right, as long as it's a valid reason, then um, we we just sort of tend to pin our idea off. Um, okay, but most of the time, we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah, most of the time, we're on the same page. To be honest, like I think we've got an understanding of what Glory Hammer is and what it needs to be. Yeah, yeah, I get you. Yeah, what what about because you, you, you're clearly talented with regards to guitars and, and keyboards, and no doubt you got some ability on bass and maybe even drums as well. So, what got you into oh, playing? Definitely not drums. <laughs> definitely not drums. drums. Um, I started I started taking classical piano lessons uh, when I was like pretty young, um, and I did them for a few years, but I, I wasn't really enjoying them to be honest. Um, so I got to about maybe like eight or nine years old. And I, and I just kind of dropped them, um, maybe a bit older. But then um, around about sort of 10 or 11, I started getting into like heavy metal. And I remember school I was at, I had a bass. So I was kind of messing around with the bass. I remember teaching myself like a few Black Sabbath riffs and stuff like that. Mm. And, um, and then one of my friends got a guitar. And I just remember like having a go on it. And it just felt way nicer in my hands. And I was, I was really into like Ozzy Osbourne and kind of Judas Priest and stuff like that, all the stuff that's like screaming guitar solo hmm. and uh, Pantera and stuff like that. And I was just like, this is way more my thing, you know. So a few years of kind of intensive practicing. Um, but then recently it's come full circle, you know. Now, now I'm kind of back to studying classical piano and I, feel, I kind of feel like I shot myself in the foot by sort of dropping it so young, you know. I kind of feel like I should have kept it up. Um but yeah, it's always, it's always been there. You know, I've always I've always been into practicing and trying to trying to learn new things. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, I think if we all had a 
a wave, a wand, we could wave and go back and you know continue on with the talent, then bring us magically back into the present with all the skills we would have developed over those intervening years. <laughs> yeah, mine's singing. I know, so I lost the ability to sing after being in choirs and touring in them and stuff, and uh, and and I've had to pick it up recently playing in bands a lot and uh now i sound like richard butler from psychedelic furs so it's, <laughs> yeah, it's the same, of, same with me actually i was in i was in school choirs and stuff for quite a bit when i was younger so i can i can hold a note but i think i wouldn't call what i do singing you know <laughs> no it's the same i know yeah it's uh yeah, we just sort of we vocalize you know and i suppose yeah. that's the way to put it but you know a lay person would look at it and go hey they're singing but whatever you know it's a bit different when you've got a real vocalist next to you and you go okay that's singing but whatever yeah yeah you absolutely <laughs> hey i read i read an interview with you and um you were quoted as talking about your thoughts on the percentage of royalties that venues were taking uh from merch sales and that sort of thing and it's a hot topic at the moment so you know yeah, what are your yeah. thoughts on it right now uh, well, nothing, nothing's really changed, and I don't think they will until there's like a kind of mass veto, I guess. Like, like if, if enough people stood against it, then maybe it would change. But I mean, I, I don't think it could possibly happen, to be honest, because everyone, everyone wants to keep working, and you know, for the entire music industry, music industry to just stop and say, you know, we're not going to do any gigs for a while is like a not going to happen really so I, I don't know i don't know what the future is and unless someone one of these big companies realizes the damage that they're doing and you know they realize that bands can't afford to keep playing then i don't think it'll change and, and i don't think that'll be the case because they're obviously only doing it because they want to make more money so there's got to be a way a around it though and i'll be i've got my thinking cap on about this one here because you're right it's wrong it's dead wrong actually have you thought about just putting up what the the merch is behind, you know, behind a desk or what have you. And then effectively you order it. So you're not actually exchanging funds there. You're ordering yeah, what you can yeah, see. Some, someone, someone was telling me that they'd done this in the USA, that they'd um, mm. basically just had a load of flyers with like a QR code on it. And they were yeah. like, look, you know, order this online and uh, we'll get it sent out to you ASAP once we get home. Um, so that's one way around it. And some, some bands have started just, you know, sell their own merch outside of a venue but then if you don't have a vendor's license then the venue would kind of be able to if they wanted to they could just call the cops on you you know and then yeah, you exactly. end up with all your merch being being seized and stuff like this so um yeah it's, it's really tricky you know i mean yeah <laughs> yeah it's a tough anymore. one yeah. Oh, it's a tough one, but it's one that we've got to, as an industry, we have to face at some point in time. There's got to be a reckoning about it. I mean, Pearl Jam were talking about it way back in 1992 or 1993 when they were giving their 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 shirts to bootleggers outside who were selling the bullshit ones. They said, forget about the garbage ones, you know, the ones that you've done for two bucks or whatever. Here's the real ones. Sell them and we'll just cut a deal at the beginning. So I cut a deal at the end of the night. So it's it's been going on for 30 plus years, I think it's fair to say. And um, it just seems to have, for some reason, it just seems to have the bubble has burst now. But it's good that you're talking about it. And it's good that high-profile artists are talking about it because if uh, you don't get your money from merch sales on the road, mate, it's a very – the chances of you breaking even and it won't happen. Yeah, it's kind of basically all we get nowadays. So. Well, there he is, ladies and gents, Michael Barber, a quick one but a good one. Nice to have some of those bite-sized conversations to share with you from time to time. Now, if you like that one, there are far more conversations over at Scars and Guitars Dot com and if you like listening i know you like reading because i've written a book scars and guitars volume one conversations from the world of 
heavy metal and beyond click the link in the banner and you'll be taken to a marketplace of your choice you can download a sample and if you do complete the purchase do hit me up because i want to thank you personally on that note i've got much more information with you to compel you to check out the book in the moment but before we get to that i want to bid you a fond farewell my name is andrew mckay smith and i'm the host of the scars and guitars podcast until next time it's a goodbye for now This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the the fans and the staying power of the the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms it, yes. Playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction. To George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, I, I just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he was, he was. Very, you know, very open-minded, and and he was into having his his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five, and Manson gave me that name, and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.